You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. Defense mode. We're survivors. Like, help with them. In our head, but they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today we will be speaking with Dr. Mohamed Mehir abdul Hay, a hematologist and bone marrow transplant physician in New York, New York, who is affiliated with multiple hospitals, including NYC Health and Hospitals, Bellevue, and NYU Langone Hospitals. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. abdul Hay. Thank you very much for having me. On this episode, we'll be chatting about symptoms, risk factors, and diagnosis of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, known as ALL. But before we get into that discussion, we're always interested in knowing what brings doctors to their field of medicine. So what brought you to the field of medicine, specifically hematology and oncology? So, you know, since high school, I have always been fascinated by blood disorders. So I always wanted to do medicine just to get into the field of blood disease. So during my medical school, after uh, second year medical school, I got to be exposed more to hematology and I loved it. In particular, leukemias, uh, you know, it's very fascinating. It's, uh, we all carry these blood, the blood cells, the white blood cells, the platelets uh, that we need them. And then when they misbehave, it's just fascinating. It's a, it's a challenge. And I always love the challenge for me to understand these diseases and to know how to tackle them and to have an impact on a patient life. For me, that was all I needed. It's fascinating. And the relationship you, I noticed during my medical school, the relationship that a physician, especially a hematologist, has with his patient is completely different than other specialty. I like to have this relationship with the patient. They, they become part more of a family. And in addition for the disease being so fascinating and trying to understand the disease and making an impact, that meant the whole world for me. So that's why I ended up to doing hematology. And you know what, it's so interesting because a lot of doctors we speak to, most of them say the same thing, saying that, you know, it's just, it's a different type of relationship with their patients. And I think it's a beautiful thing to hear, you know, doctors have that, have that outlook when it comes to treating their patients because they're already in such a challenging time. So to hear more doctors say, you know, this is a special relationship, this is a familial relationship, it's a beautiful thing. Yes, that's true. And to tell you, like when someone is diagnosed with high blood pressure, that, for example, you know, that life doesn't stop or change completely. But when you are diagnosed with acute leukemia, your life, that moment changes and it changes forever. So I like to be involved and I like to have an impact to make sure that your life goes back as normal as possible. And I believe this is so great in the field of hematology and the patient doesn't become just a patient. Uh, they become 
truly like a family member. You care about them. You monitor them. I mean, when God forbid they relapse after put them in remission, it's just heartbroken you are. Like them, it's just it's 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 fascinating. It's 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 beautiful. Right. I always refer to this quote. It says, "A good doctor treats the disease, and a great doctor treats the patient." That's a great quote. I'm gonna use it. <laughs> feel free. Feel free. <laughs> A lot of times the question will come, you know, what did I do to get this? What, the, what is the cause of ALL? We always get that question, actually. This is probably the most question we get asked about. So to give you a brief about ALL, um, so as you mentioned, ALL is acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's the second most common acute leukemia in adults. Roughly in the USA, there's about 6,500 cases a year. The characteristics is genetic and chromosomal abnormalities. So most of these ALL are associated with chromosomal abnormalities and genetic alternation in their differentiation in their cells. Why do they acquire these genetic abnormalities or chromosomal abnormalities? It's really not always known. There are some factors that have been shown to be associated with like exposure to radiation, for example, pesticides. Uh, has been associated with uh, some genetic alteration and that lead to uh, ALL. Some syndromes actually have been associated with ALL. For example, Down syndrome, Franconia anemia, Bloom syndrome, ataxia, These are the predisposing factors that we know of. And then there are some viruses actually that can put people at the risk of uh, ALL, like Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, and HIV. Because what happened with EBV, it attacked your B cells and the B cells get to be dysfunctional, so that's why you can end up having ALL. And HIV decreases your immunity, so that you basically you, your immunity doesn't see when cells misbehave, so they can actually go on and proliferate and they become cancerous cells. And do you see a lot of patients that are diagnosed later? It's typically not the first thing you look for, ALL, when a patient has certain symptoms, which, I mean, how do they present? So I can give you an example. Yesterday, I saw a new ALL patient. He is a 27-year-old. He actually was doing well, no medical problems whatsoever. He started feeling tired and fatigue, and he started having a headache and photophobia, and basically he went to his primary doctor. So his primary doctor did a CBC for him just because he was not sure what's going on, and then his CBC showed that he has a very low hemoglobin, so he was very anemic, and he has a high white blood cell count. So what happened is his, his hematologist called me and his primary physician calls me and he's like, I have this patient and can you please see him? So I see him the same day. I do a bomar biopsy and there he ended up having ALL. So this is someone that was working till the last moment. I and mean, this is, I mean, he, it just happened. He started having some symptoms. So usually people with ALL, they get to be diagnosed on a CBC because they have some symptoms. Like um, most of the symptoms are... It's either B symptoms, what we call B symptoms, meaning fever, weight loss, or night sweats, or they ended up being tired and fatigued, and someone checked their uh, CBC and found they are severely anemic and did not have an explanation for anemia, or it's thrombocytopenia, meaning low platelets. This is usually the presentation that we see. Right, that's interesting. I was also reading a patient story, and she was saying that she had a burn that took a while to heal. And she also had shortness of breath, which is what you just mentioned. And she, like you said, she was working. There was nothing, you know, that was that out of the ordinary other than those two things. And when she went in, she was later diagnosed with ALL. So like you mentioned before, it's the, the symptoms of ALL are very much associated with a number of other less serious diseases that you don't necessarily think ALL first, like Lizette was mentioning. Do you find it difficult to diagnose? So um, it's not difficult to diagnose once you have uh, some abnormal labs, but it's, it's difficult to present. 
So like I had this lady that was in her 60s, she started every day feeling more and more tired and she's like, okay, well, maybe I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> and then she did not seek medical care for, for a while and she started delaying things and things and things and eventually she went to her primary doctor who did a CBC. There were some abnormalities, not like severe abnormalities. Hemoglobin was somewhere around the 7.5. And he told her, you know what, you should go and see a hematologist. And then she also wanted to delay things because she's like, okay, maybe people sometimes they just don't want to deal with the fact that something may be serious. And she's like, no, 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 I'm going to be okay. So she started delaying things and things and things. And when by the time she came to me, she was really very, very sick, actually. And unfortunately, one of the things that we ALL has a tendency, it can go to the screen and it can go to CNS. She ended up having involvement in her cranial nerves, actually, and, and she had the CNS disease. So that we, we, we do not want. And she basically started like, oh, I should have seeked medical care. And when we, they told me, I just delayed my care. I did this to myself. But, you know, because it can be very slow presenting symptoms. Not every patient present rapidly, like the one I saw yesterday. They can be slowly, especially in elderly, and then they can attribute them to something else. And I think that's important to know what you said about presenting, just because, you know, you could try to justify, I do it all the time, you try to justify, you know, why you're tired, or even doctors, you know, you have a high blood count, well, let's see if you have an infection, or, you know, really have to start the ruling out process. But I think just the initial to get that CBC, that complete blood count from a physician to see if, you know, something isn't right, I think is really important for people to do. Not everybody is going to be diagnosed with ALL, of course, but it's really good to get that complete blood count as that starting point. That's true. And a lot of times, like if you present with, uh, say, joint pain and your primary doctor is going to say, oh, maybe it's arthritis or something like that, and that you're not going to get the complete blood count done. So that's why it can... This is this is a blood disorder. It's not visible. You don't like in other cancers. You may start feeling like a lump or like some changes in the skin or something like that. This is invisible. This is inside your blood. You're not going to see a lot of time any physical presentations unless you're severely anemic and you're pale or something like that. You probably will not. And that's why it can be um, for a while misdiagnosed or uh, delayed to get diagnosed. Right. And you mentioned that the patients get a CBC, the complete blood count. When they're then referred to a hematologist, what are other diagnostic testings that the hematologist then performs to further investigate the ALL or further define the ALL? So, you know, it depends on age. So when I have a young patient, so ALL is, has a, like a bimodal presentation. It's either of the young, like pediatric. I don't see pediatric, I see adult. But when uh, someone in adult, young adolescence between the age of 18 to 39, or elderly actually above the age of uh, 50. So when I see someone between the 18 and the 39 and they present for me with not just one cell line that is low, like anemia, say your white blood cell is low or high or your platelets, then I get really worried. So the first thing I do is I try to do a differential on the CBC. I try to take a look at the peripheral smear to see if I see any of these abnormal cancer cells called the blast. So if I do see myeloblasts, which are early precursors of white blood cells, they haven't got the time to mature, then I'm very worried. At that moment, this patient will get a bone marrow biopsy uh, and an aspirate, and then this is really the gold standard test. From the bone marrow aspirate, we do some testing, including flow cytometry, and we can diagnose ALL. So 
I'm always cautious, you know, I'm a hematologist, so when the patient comes to me, they never come to me for anemia. I'm a leukemia and a transplant physician, so most of the time they come to me and the first thing I'm thinking in my mind, okay, leukemia until proven otherwise. So yes, the gold standard to get diagnosed is a bone marrow aspirate and biopsy. However, a lot of time actually they present with a very high white blood cell count, like in the 100,000, normally should be around 10,000. And then because they have very high white blood cell count, you could see that leukemic cells are very visible on peripheral smear, they are very visible even on the CBC, and you get your diagnosis very easily just by peripheral blood. Now you said bone marrow aspirate as well as bone marrow biopsy. Is the bone marrow aspirate sufficient or should the patient get the biopsy? That's a great question, actually. And I always, they ask me, if you can get the diagnosis from aspirate, why I'm doing a biopsy? Um, so the aspirate is, is uh, the easiest test to get. So the aspirate, you cannot, in flow cytometry, you get results in hours. The biopsy, you need to cut it, stain it, and actually immunohistochemical staining, and it takes few days to get the result. The aspirate, you get the result quickly. Why aspirate is needed? Because, you know, you can run the flow cytometry, have a result in like two, three hours. And the second importance of the aspirate is you send genetic testing from there. So as I mentioned earlier that ALL, a lot of time associated with genetic alteration, chromosomal abnormalities. So the best test to do that is by running a karyotyping, by running a FISH, uh, which is fluorescence immuno in situ hybridization to look for translocations. And this you only need, you need fluid to do it. So this is why you need the aspirate blood to do it. And the marrow is the best source because this is where cells are starting to be produced and divide. So there's a lot of dividing cells, so you can get a better quality than doing it on peripheral blood. The biopsy really is more of a luxury. So the reason of the biopsy is, say you have someone that have a dry tap, meaning they have a lot of disease, they are, the marrow is packed, you cannot get an aspirate. So you need a biopsy because this is how you can get your diagnosis. The second issue that helps me with the biopsy okay. is, I wanna see how advanced is this ALL meaning if it is there's some burnout of the bio, uh, necrosis, some burnout in the biopsy, or no, there's some cellularity uh, of other precursors in the biopsy. But really, the aspirate is, is what you need, and you can get by with an aspirate to get the diagnosis, or you, you improve prognostic in, uh, things that you need from the fish or the chromosomes, abnormalities, you can get all of this from the aspirate. I think from the patient's point of view, they, they always think, okay, the bone marrow biopsy, they've heard that it's very painful. So they're thinking, you know, do I really need to get something that's so painful? But on the other hand, you know, you want your doctor to be as accurate and have the most information as possible. But we do hear a lot of people that don't have good experiences with bone marrow biopsies. Unfortunately, that's true. So I won't lie to you, there's some pain with it. But when you someone does it very, very frequently, I mean, they become very efficient and quick to do it. And the pain is very, very minimal. So I really had the patient saying, oh, I, I don't want bone marrow biopsy, I don't want to do it again. Unfortunately, they get a lot of bone marrow biopsies, not just on diagnosis, for, uh, for like after you induce them or you give them chemotherapy, consolidation, you need to check to see if they are in remission, and this is you only need to do it through a bone marrow biopsy or else you will not get it. The results, aspirate is, is fine. A lot of time I don't do a biopsy, I just do an aspirate. But I never had really a patient saying, oh, it was so traumatic, I don't want to repeat it. But yes, they do experience some pain. Like when you go to a dentist, they're going to numb you, you're going to feel them numbing. And when you go through the bone, you really can't numb inside the bone that much, so you're going to feel a little bit of a pressure more really than a pain. But you know, I have to agree with you because a lot of patients have told us that they've been to different places for the bone marrow biopsy and they found that it is less painful when they've gone to a place where they do them 
consistently and they do a lot of them. So, you know, we have heard that from patients all the time that they've gone through, you know, several bone marrow biopsies and some were not as painful and they really did say that it was, they think, because the center, they do it so many times that it did make a difference. Mama, I agree with you completely. On our podcast, we have listeners who may have just been diagnosed, who are caregivers, who know someone who may have the disease that we're speaking about. And we always encourage people to have open communication with their healthcare team. We stress the importance of shared decision making so the person doesn't feel like they're just being told what to do and they have no say or input because it is their life that's that's changing. So what are some questions from a doctor's perspective? What questions can they ask their doctors? So I always tell my patient they should ask me whatever they have on their mind because really this is so important to have an open communication. Uh, There's a trust relationship here we're building. Someone is giving you their life really and uh, they have to trust you. So and sometimes because they are so overwhelmed uh, when they present, they ju- you just told them, oh, you know, they came for abnormal uh, white blood cell count and now you're telling them you have acute leukemia. So they are overwhelmed and sometimes they sh- just don't want to ask you any questions. They just sit there and uh, listen. And this is when I actually intervene and tell them, this is the things you should be asking me and this is the things you should be considering. One is, can I cure you? What's the success of cure? What's the success of remission? And prognostic what type of ALL do I have or you have and uh, what are the um, indications for a transplant do I need a transplant with this uh, finding that I found uh, based on the cytogenetics the white blood cell count the age so I do tell them the prognostic index the prognostic it's very important they know how serious this disease how aggressive it is and what to expect and this is basically I try to do the first time. I don't want to overwhelm them by telling them, okay, you, this is your treatment, you can get this chemotherapy, and then this is the side effect of the chemo and all of this. The first time I'm trying to de- for them to understand their diagnosis and to understand uh, also the, in, in, like the prognostic finding, uh, like what they fit. They fit in standard risk, high risk, intermediate risk, and what are we going to do? Is it going to be only chemotherapy? Is there going to be possibility after chemotherapy they're going to need a transplant or not? That's the first time. And then I give them time, you know, to absorb all of that. And then the second interaction, it could be the same day in the hospital. I come afterwards to interact with them, even in clinic, or they can come this next day, depending how urgently I need to treat them, is about chemotherapy and the treatment they're going to get, the side effect of the treatment, you know, they need to know all of this information. And you mentioned the risk factors. When somebody has a higher risk, do they get treated usually more aggressively? Or can you talk more about the risk factors? So really age and the white blood cell count on presentation and the genetics are the key for uh, risk certification. Anyone presenting as an adult is considered high risk above the age of 18. Now. If someone is above the age of 39, meaning they are not anymore other than adolescents above the age of 40, they have worse prognosis, okay? So age is a key. So above 40, meaning they are higher risk automatically. And as I said, there's some data even for people that are between 18 to 38, they have some higher risk than pediatric, less than 18. Now that's one. Now the second is white blood cell presentation. So there's two types of ALL. There's a BALL and there's a TALL. So the BALL you need on presentation to have a white blood cell blast count above 30,000. The TALL from studies, it have shown to be, you need it to be above 100,000. So if you are above 30 or 100,000, BALL above 30, 100,000 for TALL, you buy automatically get a point for higher risk. And then genetics. 
the genetics that we care about in um, ALL, so hypodiploidy, meaning lower chromosomes, is a bad indication in ALL that put you at a high risk. And there's the translocation 921, which is, I have another name, Philadelphia uh, chromosome, BCR able, that put you at a higher risk. And now we know from recent data, there are others which are called Philadelphia-like meaning they behave like Philadelphia, but they do not have the translocation 922. And usually they are into two categories. One is called CRFL2 and one is called CDKN2A. If you do have any of these Philadelphia-like or Philadelphia, then you are higher risk. And the last actually in higher risk is a mutation in um, chromosome 11Q23. You have a deletion there in 11Q23. It used to be called MLL, then we changed the name to make it uh, harder for people, KM2A. <laughs> so if you do have any of these genetics, abnormalities, or high white blood cells, or age, then you are higher risk. That means most probably you are going to require a bone marrow transplant. We want to make sure that the people who are listening are able to have this information so that they can have these conversations with their doctors and not feel like they're just thrown into a world of the complete unknown. It is a completely different world. You can't argue that, but we want to at least provide them with the tools and the information that they can then enter the conversation and feel as if, one, they know what the doctor is saying to them, and then two, they know the questions that they can ask and feel comfortable asking. And you know what? They should not feel that they can't ask this question. They should ask this question. What the chance of cure? What the chance of me being in remission? What are the? They, these are hard questions, but they need to know about them, and they should not shy away from asking them. And they should also ask, like, what the risk of me, God forbid, relapsing after all of this treatment? They need. They have the right to know, and they need to know that. And I, I always find it that these are the hardest questions for patients to ask. They always try not to. Probably some, some of them, they don't want to know the answer. But if I, I always keep saying myself, if I was a patient, I would really like to know. I, I want to know. I, I want to believe that there is a, a chance for me to cure. And I want to um, hinge, hinge on that and focus on that. And I want to do all my, I can to get over this. I keep telling patients it's a relationship. Together, we're going to work on this. You're going to do all the heavy lifting. I'm just here, there to guide you. And hopefully, together, we will arrive in a state where we look at this and say, oh, do you remember one year when you uh, were being treated for your leukemia and now you are in remission? And it's, it's, there's no more reward in the whole world then when you have a patient coming to you for a follow-up it's just to tell it's like it's been a year since she's transplant or her transplant and they're just coming for a follow-up a regular follow-up it's like a social visit how you're doing it's like <laughs> how's the kids it's just amazing you feel like oh wow you made it so much impact in their life and now they're just like um they, they share their stories with you they share pictures of their their, their children it's just amazing uh, it's just uh, very rewarding but they have to ask for these questions because a lot of physicians will not tell you this unless you ask for them. That's what I was going to ask you. Do you actually wait for a patient to ask you or do you see that when a patient is not asking those kind of questions, do you actually bring up the topic? I try to bring up the topic, but I don't like bring it straightforward, to be honest with you. I tell them that, do you want to know from studies the chance of remission after induction? I don't do that very frequently. I leave it up for them if they want to ask me these questions. I always ask them, you know, you, whatever you need to know, you should ask me because this is your life and you, need, you have the right to know every detail about it. I know it's scary to ask the question, but 
if someone's diagnosed, the diagnosis is now consuming their mind and their thoughts. But if you're able to have that conversation and say, what's the possibility of cure? And have that bigger conversation, then that can become what their focus is as opposed to, I was diagnosed and now what do I do? Feeling completely helpless. Correct. There's a lot of um, misnomers because a lot of people think, oh, you know, I have acute leukemia, I'm 65, that's it, I'm gonna die. No, no, this is not true. But they become so depressed and they don't want to even open up and it's, it becomes a challenge to convince them that no, there's a, you know, there is a very high chance we can put you into remission. We don't, in this era, you know, I transplanted a patient 79 year old and allogenic stem cell transplant and he did great. Oh. So, you know, I kept telling them that there's no cutoff for transplant age anymore. It's about how good you are, uh, how much social support you have, other comorbidities. It's not end of the world, you know, we can work together, we'll get you there, you just have to believe. And that's why I said it's very important, it's a trust relationship. When there, there's this trust between the physician and the patient, the patient open up to the, to the physician and then really it become easier f for the physician and it become more, they can live with it easier for the patient. It's not easy to live with acute leukemia. I won't lie to you if your life won't change at that moment. It will, you're going to get chemotherapy, induction, you're going to end up having Everyone end up having low white blood cells. You may end up having fever, neutropenic fever, admitted to the hospital, being on antibiotics. You're gonna get pooked a lot. You're gonna get, probably end up having a, either a pick line or a Mediport to access your, your um, to access to draw blood and give you chemotherapy. You're gonna lose your hair, all of this. So, so your life is changing remarkably uh, overnight. So there's no way it's not gonna affect you spiritually or socially. All of this can affect you. And unfortunately, as a physician, I'm treating the disease. I'm not treating the other aspects. And that's why they need to open up my team consists also of a social worker. We always try to involve her to see if they need some support at home or they need even psychiatric support or all of this. It's a multi-team and it's not just, you know, treatment. Okay, this is what you're gonna get. Take your, this is the medication you're gonna get and that's it. No, it's more complicated than that. And patients do understand that, but at the moment, initial, the shock is usually the hardest part. And then with time, when they start seeing their counts doing better, they are feeling better, they really start looking forward. That's such a great point. And your approach is so is so wonderful to hear. Because again, I mean, like you said, I mean, when people have their idea of a doctor, they think they can only say so much and that, you know, we're only here to read charts, we're only here to look at scans. But to hear you speak in such an empathetic way, Listeners know that these doctors exist and you know there's yeah. there's a benefit in doing your research and finding that doctor that they feel comfortable with so that they can, they can know that they're being seen completely and that their treatment is being mapped out by someone who's taking everything into effect. That's true. I mean, unfortunately, in this era where there's so much the, the medical charts, we need everything to dictate, we need to, to write things. Like, I see a patient for three minutes, it's the chart to put my note, to put my chemo orders, all of this takes like 30 minutes in a follow-up. So, but one thing that I actually have been doing and I will always continue to do and I encourage every other physician to do, when I'm in the patient room, I do not write anything on the chart. Mm. I just there to listen to the patient and ask the patient and then reply to the patient. I have the chart just to look at labs. I write the note at the end of the day. I put my chemo order at the end of the day or the day before. And that's because I need to give that time for the patient, first of all, so they can distrust relationship. And then second of all, more importantly, because, you know, they need full attention. They need to understand you are there for them. And at the same time, they have the time to ask any question they want. 
And because, as I said, half of the treatment is medication. The other half is really the support you provide as a physician, the support the team provides for the patients. Like we work with a lot of nurse practitioners. The nurse practitioners get to know them very well. In Christmas time, for example, they share cards. I had a patient that I was treating and he was expecting their first child. So it was so hard. He was diagnosed ALL and um, I was treating him and his wife was going to deliver about three months afterwards. And he was very close to have a transplant because he had the high risk features. So, you know, when his wife delivered, uh, he uh, we wanted to make sure that he be there. So we delayed his transplant to be there. And then when, when his wife delivered, he came to clinic and we actually decided to get him a gift for for his newborn Aww. baby. So, so you know, he, he felt like he felt like part of, of, of family. And uh, we know the name of the baby. We asked for the from friends to know what is the name of the baby. And we, we, we did this for him. And when he went to transplant, uh, when in the hospital, you know, they stay in the hospital for three, four weeks. So he for three, four weeks for a newborn baby, he's not seeing his newborn oh, baby. He's yeah. doing FaceTime. Oh. And it's heart, heart, heartbreaking. Yeah. So so we wanted to make sure that he get at least to spend some time before he go for transplant. So we tried to give him some maintenance, treatment, delay, all of this. So half of the treatment is, is, is medication. With the other half, there's other factors that play a role. That's so true. And that's so kind of you and your team. Yeah. We truly believe that patients are part of a family more than really. They're not numbers. They're not just clients. Yeah. yeah. Doctor, we have to warn you. You may see an influx of people reaching out to you just because of how personable you are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode, Dr. abdul Hay, and for sharing your expertise with us on the topic of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Thanks for all you do to not only advance science, but for your patients. It's been so great chatting with you today. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun and it was great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.